All right. So, tonight's topic. Church worship. Um, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, it's, it's an important, you know, it's, it's an important um, topic. Uh, it's been an important topic for... 2,000 years or more. Um, in fact, uh, someone someone once said that um, you know that when you read the story of uh, of Cain Cain and Abel, uh, right? Um, Abel, of course, provides an, an animal sacrifice um, from the, uh, the the fat of his herd, and 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 God accepts his 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 worship. Right, he accepts his form of worship, and Cain provides some fruits or vegetables, and God rejects his worship, and then of course Cain becomes envious of, of Abel and kills his brother, and uh, thus began the first worship war, right? Because it was over worship, right? What kind of worship does God accept? Um, and we've been having worship wars uh, ever since then. Because when we talk about worship, that's probably a good place to begin, is that when we talk about worship, um, so often when Christians use that word or when we hear that word, we tend to think of the kind of music that is played, right? The kind of singing that is done. Um, I mean, how many times have you heard people say that, oh, well, we were at this church for a while and the preaching is great, but the worship wasn't very good. So we went over to this church because the worship was much better. But the preaching, you know, was was not so good, right? And of course, we know what they mean by that. But the thing is, is that worship is everything that we do in order to honor God. Um, you know, we get that primarily from passages like, you know, Romans uh, Romans twelve. Um, Romans twelve. I know some of the ladies have been memorizing Romans twelve, and. Uh, Paul begins by saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, when Paul says to present your bodies, that is Paul's way of saying that everything you do, right? Because everything that we do, we do in the body, right? Whether we do good or whether we sin, and regardless of what kind of sin it is, whether we're outwardly stealing something or entertaining evil thoughts, I mean, our brain is a part of the body. So Paul is saying, use the whole of you, right? Whatever you use this thing for, um, use it as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So the reality is, Paul says that we are to live lives of worship. Right? Worship isn't really just what we do on Sunday mornings. It's certainly not just the singing. But it's not what, just what we do on Sunday morning. We're, what we do throughout the week, we should live lives of worship to God. That everything we do brings honor and praise to Him. Uh, but certainly that means that what we do on Sunday mornings, it's not just the singing, but it is the prayers. It is the scripture reading. It is the proclamation of God's word. It is the taking of the Lord's Supper. It is dropping money in the offering box. The tithes and the offerings that we give is a part of worship. And all of that is, is worship to God. 
So worship is everything that we do on Sunday mornings. And um, what, you know, what, what can or can't we do in worship? Or what should and shouldn't we do in worship? And that's really where the debate comes in, right? There's two schools of thought out there. And, you know, even if churches or Christians aren't familiar with these terms, all Christians, all churches fall into one of these two categories. Churches will either follow what is known as the relative principle of worship, right? And the relative principle of worship basically says that as, as Christians and, and in church, we, we are to do that which God commands minimally. We are to do what God commands, which is, you know, praying and scripture reading and proclamation and singing. But we may also do that which God or that which scripture does not forbid. Okay? We are to do what God commands and we may do that which scripture does not forbid, right? If it's not forbidden. Um, and so where you find that, it's interesting that you will find churches that follow the relative principle of worship, they will either be low litur litur liturgical churches or they will be very high liturgical churches. Um, in the low liturgical churches, those are the churches where you'll see things like, you know, the, the smoke machines and the confetti through the vents and just the light shows. And, you know, I mean, I, I saw a video online one time of a, of a pastor who came into the congregation from the back of the audience, if you want to call them that. On, on like these strings, he was like suspended above everybody, and he, he comes, yeah, a zip line. He comes down, you know. It's a, it's a, it's a three ring circus. I mean, it's, We're it's, one it's, on it's all entertainment. We're having one install. Um, and then, you know, because they would say, well, look, you know, the Bible doesn't say we can't use smoke machines. The Bible doesn't say that we can't blow confetti out of the vents. You know, the Bible doesn't say that we can't have a light show going on. Um, so what's the big deal? And then in the very high liturgical churches, right, like your Lutheran churches, your Anglican churches, uh, that's where you see like they'll, they'll swing incense, right? There's incense that's going on um, and just, uh, you know, lots of ornate, very traditional, almost Catholic kind of um, practices that they do. And of course, they would say, well, the Bible doesn't forbid, you know, these things. Um, just like Luther himself was not opposed to crucifixes. He wasn't opposed to Christians bowing down before a crucifix and praying because in his mind, if that helps their faith, well, why not? And scripture doesn't forbid it. I mean, as long as they're not actually worshiping the statue, then, you know, why not? Uh, it's the same argument that the, the Greek Orthodox Church would try to use with um, iconoclasm. Uh, that it's, it's not idolatry if they're not actually worshiping it. It's just a two-dimensional object that helps them in their faith or whatever the case may be. Right. So that's the, that's the, the relative principle of worship. The other, and most, I, you know, off the top of my head, I would say probably most churches probably fall into that group. Then you have a smaller group that would hold to what's called the regulative principle of worship. And just as the name implies, uh, the regular, those who hold to the regulative principle of worship would say that scripture and scripture alone should regulate how we worship. 
It should regulate what we do and what we don't do. Uh, in fact, I brought along, I printed out um, uh, one page of our uh, soon-to-be official 1646 London Baptist Confession of Faith. And here's what it says in Article 8 of, of our confession, our statement of faith. It says, the rule of this knowledge, talking about scriptures, the rule of this knowledge, faith and obedience concerning the worship of God, in which is contained the whole duty of man, is not men's law or unwritten traditions, but only the word of God contained in the holy scriptures, in which is plainly recorded whatsoever is needful for us to know, believe, and practice which are the only rule of holiness and obedience for all saints at all times in all places to be observed. Right? So the 1646, the authors of the 1646 believe everything that we need to know and do for the proper worship of God is contained in Scripture, and it should only be derived from Scripture. Um. But, you know, and you'll find that also in like the 1689 London Confession of Faith. You'll find it in the Westminster Confession of Faith um, as well. And so most of your Presbyterian denominations like the, uh, the Presbyterian Church of America, the PCA, the OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, uh, many of your Reformed Baptist Church, at least if they hold to the 1689 or the 1644 or the 1646 London Confession of Faith, are going to practice the regulative principle of worship. But it's not simply because, well, that's what's stated in, this, in the faith, in, 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 in their confession of faith, um, but because of the scriptures from which that is uh, derived. Um, and they do offer uh, several scriptures. If you look at the 1646, there are multiple passages that you can look up yourself uh, where we get that from. Um, but I want to, you know, basically kind of walk us through that because I think it's important that we understand this, that we believe it, that we embrace it as more people uh, come into the church, that we are able to articulate this and say, this is why we worship the way that we do. This is why we're not going to change the way that we worship. Um, because, you know, when we look at the Old Testament, um, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, God is very clear on how he was to be worshipped. Right? If you read through uh, Exodus um, right around Exodus chapter uh, 28 or so, um, maybe 26. Um, yeah, starting in verse or chapter 26 and then 27 and 28 and 29 and chapter 30. Um, all of those chapters are very detailed about how God is to be worshipped, how the temple is to be set up, where things are to be, how the priest is supposed to be dressed, the way that, and, and then you read through the book of Leviticus, and there's detailed information about how the sacrifices are to be offered. Not just any way. They had to be presented a certain way. Sometimes there was a certain amount of oil that had to be presented with the sacrifice. God is very specific. Um, in the Old Testament, God doesn't say, you know, well, just worship me however you want, right? As long as your heart's in the right place, it doesn't really matter. Um, not only is he specific in what he tells them, but then we also see in places like Deuteronomy chapter 12, 
Deuteronomy chapter 12, beginning in verse 29. Remember, all of this is written by the same author, right? The Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all written by Moses, all given to the Israelites as they are traveling from Egypt to the promised land. He's writing this stuff hot off the printing press. They're reading it, right? And in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 29, Scripture says, When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go into dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, listen to this, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, don't say this to yourself, how did these nations serve their gods? How did they worship their gods? That I also may do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Listen to this. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Right? So right there, very clearly, God says to the Israelites, when you enter the land, do not try to incorporate the way they worship their God into the way you worship the one true God and change the way I have commanded you to worship me, right? But of course they do, and we know that's part of what leads to their demise. Uh, they don't clearly follow the teachings of what God had uh, told them, the way that God had prescribed. But God is very clear on how he is to be worshipped, and he doesn't want that to change. And it doesn't matter that their heart is simply in the right place. Because you look at, you know, you look at things like um, uh, 2 Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, I believe it is, uh, the story of, uh, of, of David moving the ark, attempting to move the ark. And, uh, you know, they put it on an ox cart. That was their first mistake, right? Because remember, worship is not just what you do in the temple or in the tabernacle. They didn't have a temple yet. In the tabernacle, you know, what a, what's in the New Testament is, is true in the Old Testament. All of the Israelite life is supposed to be lived out in worship to God, right? Obedience is how you worship God. And they put the ark on, the, on an ox cart. Right? That was the first mistake, right? God commanded that it was to be carried with two poles slid through it. And, and, the, uh, and the priest, uh, the Levites, were to pick it up and, and carry it. Because the ark of the covenant was the throne of God. And... Uh, and, and in that day and age, the Israelites would have understood the meaning behind this. In that day and age, kings very often were carried by slaves, right? They would put them up and he would be on his throne as they would go through town. Uh, no king would ever have his throne put on the back of an ox cart. And so God said, you carry my throne. They put it on the back of an ox cart, first mistake. Then the ox stumbles and Uzzah reaches out and touches his hand to stop it. And again, God had commanded in the Old Testament, no one is to lay a hand on the Ark of God. Not just the Ark, on any of the temple furnishings, in fact. Um, the priests uh, were the only ones that could touch the temple furnishings, and they were supposed to come in and cover uh, the, the, the table of incense. They were supposed to cover, uh, or the table of showbread, the altar of incense, They were and, and, and cover those things. And then the Levites would come in and carry those, and then the Levites would come in and they would, you know, the, the high priest or the priest would put the poles through the, the rings of the ark 
and the Levites would lift it and they would carry it. So nobody was supposed to, to touch any of the temple furnishing. And Uzzah does, and God strikes him dead. And the, the message that God is communicating clearly to everyone is that it, the fact that Uzzah's heart was in the right place is irrelevant, right? Because God, just like what um, Samuel says to, uh, to King Saul, right, to obey is better than sacrifice. To heed him is better than the fatted rams, right? God wants obedience because that is how we show our love and worship and reverence for God. Um, isn't that what Jesus says in John 14, 15? He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? And and then what's interesting is in John 15, 14, kind of two sides of the same coin in John 15, 14, Jesus says, you are my friends if you keep my commandments, right? What God wants from us is obedience because obedience demonstrates that we revere him. We treat him as holy. Um, isn't that why Moses was kept out of the promised land, if you remember that story, right? God, God commands him. He says, go and speak to the rock to bring forth water. Moses does two things wrong, right? Anybody remember what those are? He strikes the rock. Right. Shall we bring forth water from this rock? And God says to him, because you did not regard me as holy. Because his disobedience demonstrated a lack of fear and reverence for God. You did not regard me as holy, he says, before the eyes of Israel. He prevents him from going into the Holy Land. Yes. So I know maybe I'm jumping the gun, but that same God that we read about in the Old Testament, I'm not sure the Old Testament, but we read the particulars about those first five books, especially, you know, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right. all the instructions. Um, how does that translate to our worship today? Same God that he requires of us. Now we are in the church. We don't have the ark. Mm. When we are worshiping, because we don't get, we don't get the what songs are. Well, we do song, songs and hymns. You know, we don't get the how many and that kind of thing like in the Old Testament. Right. So, how would you say that that same reverence we give of His people in the Old Testament, the same God, now in the New Testament requires us to sacrifice and makes us acceptable to God? Yeah, I would say that um, that God still um, demands obedience to his word as true worship. Um, and so we just read Deuteronomy 12. Now we look at 1 Corinthians. You look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And here, Scripture says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. That's in the New Testament. Don't go beyond what is written. Right. Now, what verse are you on? 
verse 6. First Corinthians 4, 6. So Paul commands, do not go beyond what is written. Now, there's a little bit of debate as to whether or not Paul is referring uh, to what he has, has written here in 1 Corinthians. Is he referring back to uh, the prior letter that he wrote to them? Either way, the point is, he's being very clear, don't make stuff up on your own, right? I have written you certain instructions. Well, this is, this is God's word to us. And so we need to be careful that we don't go beyond what is written. And there, there are texts in the New Testament where we are told clearly how we are to worship God. Um, now, I want to kind of speak to your question about, you know, what do we do with the fact that, well, but they had a temple and we don't have that anymore and they had a priesthood and we don't have that anymore. But don't we? We do, right? Uh, we are a royal priesthood, according to First Peter, right? We are the we are the temple, uh, as living stones. Peter says we are brought together into the living temple of God, and so just because, just because when we gather together uh, at the American Legion building or some churches in a gymnasium or if you're in China maybe in a basement. Uh, just because where you gather doesn't look like a ornate temple doesn't mean it's not the temple. The temple is there, and the priests are there. We are all priests of God. You know, in the Old Testament, um, you know, we tend to think of Solomon's temple, which was really glorious, right? But prior to that, it was a tabernacle. It was a tent. It was held up with poles, and there was ropes that they would hammer in. I mean, it was a tent. It, it probably was not have looked like anything spectacular. Now, certainly the temple furnishing would have. It was made out of gold, um, well, overlaid with gold. Uh, so it would have been pretty amazing looking. But the tabernacle itself from a distance would have looked like a giant shepherd's tent. Uh, but nonetheless, when they erected that tent, it became the throne room of God because that's where the Ark of the Covenant is, right? That was the presence of God. Um and so when we gather on Sunday mornings, I think that's the point that Peter is making, that when we, when the church comes together, when we assemble for worship, that place becomes the temple of God, uh, because that is where God meets with his people, because that's really what it was in the Old Testament. Um, you know, God is omnipresent, right? He's everywhere. And the Jews knew that. They knew God was omnipresent. And so they also knew that they could pray to Yahweh wherever they wanted. I mean, if they were out, they could be praying to Yahweh and he would hear. But they knew that the tabernacle was the special dwelling place of God, where God would speak to his people um, directly from above the Ark of the Covenant, from be, from above the mercy seat between the two cherubim, right? Um that continues to happen on Sunday morning. Because on Sunday morning when we gather and we reconstitute the temple of God and we are the priest and someone gets up and either reads or proclaims from this, what is this? This is God speaking. This is not just a record of what God has said. This is God speaking. And so it is the same thing. What they experienced in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, and in the temple, we experience every Lord's Day, wherever we gather. It becomes the tabernacle of God, the temple so of God. One of the things we remember when we went to the tabernacle, we ended 
Devin is talking about all the different festivals and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, going along with what Sandra was saying, how does that look in modern time? I mean, like, what type of observances do we have other than your Christmas and Easter? But do you, like, those were very significant and those, that was an act of obedience too. So how does that look in modern times? Because um, all of those... Um... All of those uh, ceremonies and, and all of those festivals, they were all designed to point forward to Christ. Um, the entire Old Testament points forward to Christ and is fulfilled in him. Now, that doesn't mean that everything in the Old Testament is to be ignored and is abolished. Um, but Christ, you know, Christ himself says that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. I've not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And then he says, not one jot or tittle will pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Well, there are some aspects of the Old Testament that have been fulfilled, right? Like the sacrificial system, right? He is the ultimate sacrifice, so that's why that is no more. Um, there are some aspects that have been fulfilled. There are aspects of the Old Testament that are in the process of being fulfilled, right? Um, one is, is, is the Sabbath. Um, the Sabbath doesn't just become obsolete. We now um, live out the Sabbath every day that we continue to put our faith in Christ and trust in him and find our ultimate rest in him, according to Hebrews chapter four. And then there are some that will not be fulfilled until the second coming, until we are on the new earth as, as believers and fulfilled in the sense of no longer applying is what I mean by that. Um, there are some even from the 10 commandments, uh, for example, thou shalt not commit adultery, right? That, that commandment is going to be irrelevant on the new earth because there's no marriage on the new earth. That's what Jesus said, right? Nobody marries or is given in marriage. So you can't, you can't break a commandment if there is no marriage. We're all married to Christ. So that, it becomes completely fulfilled. But that law, we are still fulfilling in the here and now. Um, so, so does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. I was yeah. Just, I mean, I was just thinking about it, how you were talking about the old. You know, Testament, I was just thinking, you know, how a lot of times we just potlucks or when we get together for a good Sunday fellowship like we used to do, that's kind of those festival-type feels. You know, right. People are coming together sure. and they're doing, I don't want to call it extracurriculars because it's not, I mean, sure. you're still worshiping God, but I was just curious. Yeah. Of course, that's not commanded. I mean, as you know, it's, right. it's not a biblical festival, but yeah, we're, right. we're commanded to yeah. fellowship with, together yeah. with the saints. Yes, Terry. Uh, the Lord's Supper, yes, and I was uh, thinking that that like the Passover does get carried over into the Lord's Supper. Um, baptism is a New Testament um, commandment. It's a New Testament ordinance. Yes, so that would be one. Of, it's an ordinance, kind of like they had certain things they would do. We have. Yes, it's connected to the ceremonial cleansings um, in the Old Testament, um, but certainly the Lord's Supper is is very much linked to the Passover because Jesus. Uh, institutes the Lord's Supper during the Passover meal. And so we actually are basically celebrating the Passover every Sunday. And isn't that what we are doing in the Lord's Supper? We are celebrating the day that the death angel passed over us because of Christ's blood, the lamb, the blood of the lamb that covers us. And every Sunday we celebrate our own personal Passover, so to speak. Um, so that definitely, that definitely carries over. Um, but when we talk about worship, so we're, we, you know, it's, it, I think, first of all, it is important to recognize 
that um, when we gather on Sunday morning, um, we reconstitute the temple of God. And that may sound weird, um, but it's not when you think about the fact that, that the tabernacle was a mobile temple, right? They would erect it, and then they would stay in one spot for a while, and they were told that when the pillar of cloud would move, right, they would what? Break down the, the tabernacle. They would break it all down, they would pack it all up, and then they would carry it to wherever they got to go, and then the pillar of cloud would stop, and they would resurrect it, and then that pillar of cloud would inhabit the tabernacle, and that would basically be the presence of God in the Holy of Holies over the Ark of the Covenant, right? So it's much the same that when we come together, we are uh, erecting, so to speak, the tabernacle, and we are having church, and then when we disperse, it is sort of being broken down, and we go to live our lives, and then we gather again on Sunday morning. So we're doing the very same thing that they did in this life. We are on this journey. They were on a journey to the uh, the promised land. In this life, we are on a journey to the celestial city, right? Um, heading there. We're on a pilgrim's progress. And so we break down the tabernacle every Sunday. We re bring it back together every Sunday. And literally. And we do, we, literally. <laughs> and we, 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 when we enter into that place, and this is why it's so important. It was a part of my prayer when we started is because... Um, one of the tremendous mistakes that they made in the Old Testament is that, you know, when they first built the tabernacle, um, you know, of course, that was only 40 years. But then when they, they built the temple, you know, at first it's like, wow, this is amazing, right? This is really the, the throne room of God. It's so special. But kind of like buying a new car, Right, you all have been there. You buy a new car. When you first buy it, you're like, you know, don't touch my car. Right, you got a fingerprint on it. You know, right? And you're you're washing it like every week or whatever. But then within six months to a year, you know, you're not washing it so much. And then after two years, you're kicking the door shut. You know, like whatever. Right. It, this this very special temple. By the time you get to Jesus, what are they doing inside the temple? They're selling animals. Right. I mean. And this is where the Jews fell into the relative principle of worship. Because you're not going to find in the Old Testament, thou shall not sell oxen and, and goats and sheep in the temple. You're not going to find that. Because God thought, well, it's just common sense. This is the throne room of your king. Who would ever think to bring oxen into the throne room of their king and sell them like a flea market, right? But they were like, well, it's not forbidden in the Old Testament. It's very um, practical. It's very practical, right. It's very practical. But not and, reverent. Uh, you know, but not reverent. And so Jesus, of course, he gets there and he just flips a lid. He flips a righteous lid. He doesn't sin. But he just realizes, do you not get what you're doing and where we are, right? And they're probably thinking, well, Gosh, this building only gets used, you know, periodically. But, you know, Monday through Friday, it's just a building. We might as well do something with it. Um, Jesus is saying, no, this is the place where God meets. Um, I think it's important that we keep that in mind, that no matter where we meet, whether it be the American Legion, a gymnasium, you know, whatever, when we come together for corporate worship, that place becomes sacred ground, becomes holy ground becomes uh, the throne room of our king and he does speak to us 
just like in the Old Testament. He speaks to us from his word. Um, but there are certain things that we're commanded to do uh, in, in, in worship. So what, what should we do? What should we not do? Well, we just read, Scripture says, don't go beyond what is written. So what we do in worship are basically six things. There are six elements of worship uh, that, that, that we do. And, um, and when we talk about, uh, you know, what, what we do in worship is oftentimes broken up into two categories. You have, you have, um, um, elements of worship and then you have, uh, uh, circum, circumstantial, circumstantial elements of worship and, um, essential elements of worship. So you've got essential elements of worship, circumstantial elements of worship. And what, what we mean by that is, um, essential is it, these are the things that God commands. Circumstantial are things that it just depends on the circumstance and it really doesn't matter. Um, for example, uh, it is an essential element of worship that we gather on the Lord's Day for worship, that we gather for corporate worship, right? Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, we're not to forsake the assembling of the believer. When we gather for worship, whether that be at 8 a.m., 9 a.m., 10 a.m., that's circumstantial, right? The Bible doesn't tell us that. Um, what is an essential element of worship is the reading of God's word, and we'll look at some of these passages. Um, what is circumstantial is, does it have to be read directly from the Bible? Can we read it out of the bulletin if the scripture references are there? Can we read the scripture from an overhead projector? Right, that, those are circumstantial elements of worship. Um, but what are the essential elements of worship? Well, first of all, prayer, right? Prayer is, is essential. Um, not only because it makes sense, but the Bible actually commands it. Um, look at, uh, 1 Timothy. And remember that Timothy is a pastor. This is a pastoral epistle, First and Second Timothy and Titus are called pastoral epistles because they're written to pastors um, on how to run a church, how to uh, shepherd the church. And here's what Paul writes to Pastor Timothy. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high places that we may lead. 1 Timothy 2.1. And then he says, uh, for kings and all who are in high places, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, right? And um, and uh, and he'll go on to say in verse 8 as well, I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So scripture commands us to pray, right? So the fact that we pray in church is not just because it makes sense, but this is what scripture commands us to do. Not only are we commanded to pray, but we are commanded to engage in the public reading of God's word. You look at, uh, again, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verse 13. Paul writes to Timothy, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. That's why we read so much scripture in our, in our worship service. Now, there are some churches that don't do that much scripture reading because they say, well, you know, we read the sermon text before the sermon, so there's our public scripture reading. Um, and they would argue, or they would try to argue, that, well, 
we don't have to do that much because in New Testament times, um, you know, most people were illiterate. Uh, most people did not have a Bible. Even through to the Middle Ages, um, the Bible was kept in Latin. Only the church had the Bible. Most of your commoners did not have a Bible in their home. The only place they would learn about the Bible is in church. And so they would read long passages of scripture uh, in church on, on, on the Lord's day. And many would say today, you know, everybody's got a Bible, right? Bibles are everywhere. But here's the unfortunate thing is that when you, when surveys have been done among professing Christians who attend church on a regular basis, the vast majority of them admit to not reading their Bible on a daily basis. Uh, most professing Christians in the United States who attend church regularly every Sunday admit that they read their Bible probably less than once a week. Um, they just they just don't. And many of you have probably experienced this. The evangelical Western church is suffering from biblical illiteracy. Um, many Christians simply do not know their own Bible. They think God who helps them, God helps those who help themselves is actually in the scriptures. You know, these are people who have been in church for years. Uh, right. It's like, you know. First opinions. Yeah. I thought it was in Spartacus chapter 12. Um, yeah, you're right. And uh, so for that reason, for that reason, uh, I think there is still great value in reading large sections of in reading large sections of scripture um, to those that attend so that they can they can hear it. They can hear the law of God. They can hear the gospel and they can get these passages um, that many of them may not get otherwise. Yes, Carla. Right. And I have an idea of what exhortation is, but yeah. what is it actually? It, it means to encourage, uh, to exhort, to encourage, to do the right thing. Um, and it, it goes very close, it's very closely related to teaching. And so the gift of exhortation is oftentimes, the, you know, people who have that gift are those who are able to uh, encourage by use of the word of God and to exhort them to live holy lives, to live godly lives, to do the right thing very closely related with teaching or preaching. And so he says, devote yourself to the public reading of God's word, to exhortation, and to teaching. He's telling him that this is what you do in church, right? This is what you do with your people. Um, but not only that, but look at 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. So again, he writes a second letter to Pastor Timothy, who's pastoring the church in Ephesus. And he says in chapter four, verse one, I charge you, very, very strong language. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead. And by his appearing in his kingdom, he basically places them under an oath. Preach the word, right? So the preaching of God's word is something that we must do in church. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. There's that word again. Exhort uh, with complete patience and teaching. Why? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth 
and wander off into myth, right? We live in that day and age today. Yes, they've been they've been throughout the church. You know, there are, there are always those out there professing Christians who don't really want to know the truth. They they want you they want to they want you to preach or teach what makes me feel good, right? Teach what I want to hear and not not yes, tickle my ears. And as soon as you say something that they don't like, well now preacher, you know, you've gone from preaching to meddling and uh and and we're leaving, right? We're we're leaving the church. Or we're going to run you out of the church, one or the other. Um, but we are, churches are commanded to, um, to pray. We are commanded to devote ourselves to the public reading of scripture. We are commanded to preach. Um, we are commanded to, um, um, to engage in, uh, the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So, for example, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, verse 18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. You see that same commandment to the church in Colossae, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, same commandment there. Now, there's some debate as to what the differences are here. All theologians agree that Psalms, that's obvious, right? Psalms. Because the, the, the book of Psalms was the hymn book of the people of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament church. They actually sang the Psalms. It's hard to sing them now because when you translate from Hebrew into English, you lose a lot of the rhyming. But in the Hebrew, many of them, they have a, a rhythmic pattern to them. And they were sung. Yeah, what's that? Yeah, we should just sing in Hebrew. Um, put it on the docket. We'll make it happen. And so today, you know, churches will oftentimes use psalters. Well, they'll take the psalm and they'll put it to music and they'll have to alter the words somewhat to make it rhyme. And they're not word for word. Um, but the Psalms are the Psalms. What's the difference between hymns and spiritual songs? That's where the debate comes in. Uh, most think that these are just two, two genres within the New Testament era. Um, we don't know exactly what the difference in sound would have been like, but, but most theologians think these are three different genres. Uh, and so today the equivalent might be the Psalter, hymns, and spiritual songs might be the equivalent of contemporary worship songs such as Getty music or something to that effect. Um, but the point is, is that God, you know, at least in scripture here, we see in Ephesians and Colossae, um, commands variety. Um, and, and he commands variety. Well, first of all, God likes variety. Um, he loves to be sung to. Um, the book of Psalms weren't all identical either. You know, they were written over a large period of years. Some of the Psalms are written by Moses. Some of the Psalms are written by the sons of Korah. Some of the, a lot of the Psalms are written by David. Um, that, that's a big span of time. From Moses to David is 500 years, right? So they didn't all sound the same. Um, and the fact that the Psalter is the biggest book in the Bible tells you something, right? God loves to be sung to. He loves to be sung to. Um, and I kind of talked about this on Sunday. 
is this is the mistake that churches make that they want to target a certain audience, right? And so we're going to, we're going to target, you know, the older traditional crowd. So we're only going to do hymns, right? We're going to target the younger group. So we're only going to do contemporary music and no hymns. Um, I try to take this literally psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And I think, I think there's biblical prudence in trying to have a variety of music within the church sing some of the psalms uh, if we can, to sing the hymns uh, in their classic style, to sing some of the contemporary stuff that is really good and not write off any of it. Yes? And I mean, you, you know this, you've seen a little bit of it, but a lot of churches like separate their services intentionally. So you have one crowd who prefers the hymns right. and the next crowd who prefers more contemporary. Right, right. Like, like the early services hymn, the later services right. contemporary. Right, like two different little churches right. within right. all the church. people come and want to hear them. And that, <laughs> just, yeah. that just flies in the face of what we talked about on Sunday, right? God likes unity in diversity, right? Having a blend teaches all of us to be patient with each other, Right. There's people in the church that when we sing a hymn, they go, oh, this is great. And then, oh, another contemporary one, right? And then there's some people go, oh, a contemporary song. Well, we're singing a hymn again, you know? Look, we love each other, right? And we, and we come together and we extend grace and we're patient with one another and we're a family. And, uh, and, 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 and there's unity in diversity and that's what God likes to see. So we're commanded to... To, to, to encourage one another, Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Um, we are to, part of worship is the, uh, the, the taking up of the offering. Um, first Corinthians. And we're gonna get there eventually, but first Corinthians 16. Right? Paul commands them, commands the church in Corinth. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. On the first day of every week, right? So Paul is saying this is supposed to be a part of what you do on the Lord's day, right? So you pray, you devote yourself to the public reading of God's word, you preach the word, you encourage one another with psalms and the spiritual songs, and you take up an offering for the saints, right? That's a part of worship, Um what we give is worshiping God. You know, that, that's where the worship begins, right there on Sunday morning. Walking in and putting something in that, that's where the worship of God begins. This is, I'm giving this to God. Um, and then the, uh, the Lord's Supper, right? The Lord's Supper. Um, Acts chapter uh, 20. Oh, wait, okay. I missed one. Yes, we pray, we preach, we sing, we offer to the Lord. We, we, we pray. Public reading of scripture. Ah, thank you. That's probably the one you missed. Yes. Preaching the word of God. Okay, and then sing, singing. Offering. And then offering. And then, okay. and then the Lord's seven. Supper. Okay. And we get that. Um, first of all, as I've said before, this is the, the model that is laid out for us. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. When we were gathered together to break bread on the first day of the week, that was part of what they did. Um, and that, that's the language that was, that was used, you know, to break bread. It's the language that we, we see, um, being used in the gospels. Uh, Jesus took up the bread and he, he broke it and handed it to his disciples. That's where that phrase comes from. He broke the bread 
and handed it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Paul uses that same kind of language in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verse uh, 16, middle of verse 16. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And then he'll say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, listen, when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the good. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe in part, but there must be some factions. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating one another, then he goes on to rebuke them and then to teach them. But the point is, Paul assumes, Paul is assuming that you're doing the Lord's Supper on Sunday, right? And I hear that it's not being done well, right? This was clearly the practice then of the church at Corinth. They were coming together on the Lord's Day. They were doing the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day. Paul says, you're not doing it right. Let me, let me rebuke you. Then let me correct you. So this was the practice of the New Testament church. So these are the things that are essential elements of worship, right? Now, how we do the Lord's Supper, right? Whether we pass the tray, right? Whether we have one piece of bread that we actually break and pass around, whether we have one cup that we all pass around, or we all have little cups, right? Those are circumstantial elements of worship. Um, you know, because it's got to be done some, because some people want to, when you argue for the regulative principle of worship, you're going to get people who are going to give you this counter argument that don't agree with it. They'll say, well, if you really believe that, that we're only supposed to do what is commanded in Scripture, well, then why do you have chairs? The Bible doesn't say you're supposed to have chairs in church. You know, why do you have a pulpit? You know, the Bible doesn't say anything about the preacher having a pulpit up there, right? Okay, well, those are circumstantial. Um, you know, we've got to sit somewhere. And certainly in the New Testament, yeah, they may have sat on the floor. They may have sat on benches. They may have sat on cushions. But they sat somewhere. We're using chairs just to sit on because that's what we do in our day and age, right? Uh, they would have set the scrolls on something uh, in the synagogue, you know, right. So, so you know, we don't get concerned about the, the circumstantial, but we want to be careful that we don't move beyond that. We're not saying... That, oh, the Bible doesn't forbid us from using chairs, therefore we can use it. But these things don't add to worship. They're just things that we do, right? Um, the Bible doesn't command us to wear shoes to church either, but we all wear shoes. Um, and so they want to get a little bit ridiculous there. Um, but we want to be careful that when it comes to the, the essential elements of worship, that we follow what Paul commands. Uh, well, first of all, what God commands in Deuteronomy chapter 12, I mean, if that applies to the people of the Old Testament, God says, do not go beyond, right? Do not add or subtract from what I have commanded you. If that applied to them, certainly it applies to us. And then also 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says, do not go beyond what is written. Not only that, but you get to the end of the entire canon, and what does the very end of the entire canon say, Revelation 22, verse 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, 
which are described in this book. Now, granted, I admit, I grant that contextually, John has in mind the book of Revelation, right? But we also know that the Bible is one book written by one author, right? And that author is God. That author is the Holy Spirit. And I don't think it's coincidental that this passage comes in the last chapter of the last book that closes the canon for the church, right? I think this applies to all of God's word, not just based on this, but based on 1 Corinthians 4, 6, based on Deuteronomy chapter 12, right? We are not to add or subtract anything from what God has commanded. To do that is to invite the cursings and the wrath of God. Um, therefore, in in our church and in many other churches like ours, in the Reformed tradition, let me put it that way, this is how Reformed churches do church. In the Reformed tradition, we follow the regulative principle because we believe we ought not to do that which God has not commanded. It's not just we can do what God hasn't forbidden. No, no, no. We only do what God has commanded and we don't go beyond that. And so when people come to church and they say, have you guys ever thought about doing this or doing that? Well, scripture doesn't command that. So we're not going to do that, right? That's not something we're going to do. Um, we want to try to stick as close to the scripture as possible because that's what um, honors God. What you just said in back of the itching ears, I've heard, I mean, directly from professing Christians, like this year even, say things like, and it's so sneaky for those teaching a congregation to do, but they say, oh yeah, no, we go to a biblical church, they teach from the Bible, they're just not as strict about what it means, that they allow you to interpret some things for yourself, like that that's the better way to be, right. is that we're allowed to be individuals, and it's it's just like, what a what an easy way to introduce heretical thinking, yeah. but you know, yeah. people very comfortably will say, oh yeah, no, we go to biblical church, so... Because yeah. they have a Bible. We because the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. We, we yeah. teach from the Bible. So I was just going to ask, just because my mind was kind of simple. So you were talking about the, the essential and the circumstantial. Mm -hmm. So if we went to the five questions, the who, what, where, when, and how, and all of that. So would you say that the who is, and the when are the definite essentials, but the other three, the how, the what, and the where, those would be more circumstantial? Like, the day of the week that we do it, that's definitely essential. Who we're worshiping is absolutely essential. But the other things would be more circumstantial, like like um like what the order of worship looks like or mm -hmm. or what or um where the location is right. or how they do the Lord's Supper, like you said. So just I'll just try to break it down in my mind. Yeah, I would I would be careful with um, simplifying it that far because someone could say, well, sure, the, it, the how we worship is circumstantial. So, you know, the fact that that, uh, you know, we we do a light show or we use yeah. smoke machines. Right. That's that's how we worship. And that's, you know, circumstantial. And, and, and I would disagree with that. Okay. I mean, my response would be, uh, where does God command smoke machines to be used? Now that's not to say there wasn't smoke in the tabernacle, but it was the glory of the Shekinah, right? It was the Shekinah glory of God uh, that filled the tabernacle. It wasn't fabricated smoke. Um, 
And so, so I would, yeah, I would be careful there. I would just say, look, we just, we, we go by scripture. Um, and even the how with the Lord's Supper, um, even the how with the Lord's Supper, right? Someone might say, well, so yeah, we do it every Sunday, but sometimes we use orange juice and sometimes we use apple juice. Well, Christ didn't consecrate apple juice or so orange consistent. juice. Like right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, good questions. But, but this is it. This is important. And it's important because, see, this is where we kind of get into the debate with the other side of the aisle, which are brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to be careful to say that, you know, our, our Pentecostal brethren, our assemblies of God brethren, they love the Lord too. Um, but many of them would say, you know, why get hung up on the details? Why is it such a big deal? Does it really matter as long as your heart's in the right place, right? Well, let's look at Uzzah. I think his heart was in the right place. Like, oh my gosh, the Ark of the Covenant, right? This is terrible. God strikes him dead. Um, well, yeah, they were already in trouble, right? Um, and, and and Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? Moses was forbidden from going into the promised land because he did not specifically and strictly follow God's commands. Yeah. And God says, right, right. You wonder how you wonder how long Moses kicked himself after that, right? <laughs> you know, but I mean, he 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 lost his temper. You know, he had a temper, and he struck the rock, probably out of anger, uh, and then said, "Shall we?" And that oh, crossed the line there. Um, and so again, Jesus says, "If you love me, you will keep my commandments." And so this is really, it's driven by love. And this is where the other side gets confused sometimes. This isn't driven by legalism. This is driven by a love for God, a love for his word, a desire to honor him, that we want to be careful to do that which God commands and not go beyond that which is written. Um, yes? I Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll go to Bobby and then we'll come back to you, Margo. <laughs> Bobby, your question. You've got, you've got the mic. That's absolutely true. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's converse thinking, but it's just, it's a simple, it sounds simple, yeah. but that's, that's just a plain word. That's right. That's right. Margo. Okay, I'm just curious. <laughs> Extracurricular activity that some churches have, like at Christmas, uh, yes. we're going to have a beautiful choir singing and camels coming down the aisle, <laughs> and, or at Easter, we're actually going to have the crucifixion and hanging on a, this wooden cross. You know, that's all and I just was curious. I mean, your feeling on all of those kinds of extracurricular activities. 
Yeah, I don't see them commanded in Scripture to be a part of worship. It's, it's one of the reasons, uh, like here's a, here's a more simpler one that I could see coming up <laughs> even in this church at some point in the future, right? Uh, can, if we were to have a building, right, can we put up a Christmas tree in the sanctuary? <laughs> no. Right? Now, I like Christmas trees, and I love putting up ours at home, right? But God doesn't command that 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 be a part of worship. He doesn't command that we do that. Uh, so no, we, we don't do that. You know. Now, now here's here's a, here's a legitimate question to that, and I've had people ask me this, um, and so I'll just bring it up here. Okay, well, Advent is coming up, right? The Advent candle, right? Okay, so what do you do about that? Um, my simple response to that is. Um, in the New Testament times, how do you think they illuminated the room that they were in? They used candles, right? So just because, you know, in our day and age, candles are purely for decorative purposes because we have electric lighting, right? But they clearly would have had candles in that day and age. They would have had candles all over the sanctuary to have light to read by or whatever the case may be. And so, you know, bringing candles in, to me, it doesn't violate any aspect of Scripture. Um, you know, we're not making it a part of uh, the worship experience. It's just candle light. Jesus is the light of the world. Um, so that's that's my reason there. Some people think that's, you know, shaky ground that I'm on. Um, but, you know, we can agree to disagree, I suppose. Um, but But beyond that, you know, the whole crucifix... And all of that other stuff, you know, we have to be very, very I mean, they careful. Do, you know, dramas. Right, dramas, skits. I've seen yeah, that. And again, yeah. Yeah. That's when you're clearly going beyond, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there is an area where you can, like, you know, start to wonder, like, are we approaching that line? But then there are things that you just know this is way beyond. This is way beyond. And people will do this, by the way, like on Fridays and Saturdays. They won't necessarily take the Lord's Day and put on a big drama necessarily. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Feed the sheep, not entertain the goats. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Feed the sheep, not entertain the goats. Exactly right. Um, all right. Before I close in prayer, um, if you want more on this, I did write a book. Some of you know that. <laughs> Well, did you bring copies tonight? I did. I have. I have copies. I got. I got to do. So I don't have bookshelf space anymore. So, you know, these are just sitting in my garage. So, if anybody uh, wants one, if you don't have one already, you're free to. You're free to. Eric's uncle took If I if I sign it, it'll decrease the value. So. Well, maybe not first. It is. So your plug for your book is in your recording. It is. <laughs> it is. All right, let's uh, let's close in a in a word of prayer. Our gracious God, uh, our King, our Lord, our Savior, Father, we pray that you would help us to ever uh, remember uh, that truth that you are our King, and that when we gather 
uh, particularly on the Lord's Day for corporate worship, uh, that we are entering into the very throne room of our King, and we ought to treat it as such, Lord God. In everything that we do, in all of our behavior, Lord God, should reflect that we believe that we are standing on holy ground. And uh, Father, we pray that you would help us to, uh, to cling closely to your word and to worship you in a way that brings you honor and reverence and praise. And uh, Father, we pray uh, all of these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.